This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This program may contain explicit language. Also, we have a newsletter coming out. It's at slate.com slash gist news. Now on with the possibly filthy show. It's Friday, August 16th, 2019. From Slate to the Gist, I'm Mike Pesca. Our president projects. It's the I know you are, but what am I presidency? If only it were also the names will never hurt me society. But he puts on other entities that which is festering within. This week, he claimed that he put China on the road to recession. Mm-hmm. He, of course, said during the campaign that Hillary received help from the Russians and the Ukrainians. Mm-hmm. Then, of course, there was this chestnut. Putin, oh, wait, wait, from wait. everything I see, has no respect for this person. Well, that's because he'd rather have a puppet as president of no the United puppet, States. No puppet. And it's pretty clear. You're the puppet. It's pretty clear. You Every outlet except Fox is fake news. Everyone is lying about him. And yesterday, in a speech in New Hampshire... This happened. That guy's got a serious weight problem. Go home, start exercising. Of course, Trump did add after that. Got a bigger problem than I do. Got a bigger problem than all of us. So maybe he was acknowledging his own, shall we say, portliness, the general girth of the base. But that was the exception. If Ted's lying and Hillary's crooked, what then is Don, I ask? projecting. He is projecting. Well, today we've seen the largest consequence of a specific type of projection, and that is Trump being undone by the famous, the infamous Mercator projection, which is fueling his stupefying, jumbled, distracted, and distracting ADHD idea. Here's CNN. Uh, the Wall Street Journal was the first to report yesterday since everyone else has mashed. The president has been discussing the possibility of buying the island of Greenland, purchasing it from Denmark. Now, we now you know Trump likes things that are big. Trump Tower is described by Trump as 68 stories tall, even though it's only 58, that sort of thing. And Greenland, for all these years, has been benefiting from the Mercator projection, which is how the most common maps present as flat a round thing like the Earth. Because of the Mercator projection, named after the 16th century Flemish geographer Gerardus Mercator, because of this, Greenland appears way bigger on maps than it is in real life. In fact, on maps, it appears to be roughly the same size as Africa. In reality, Greenland's 2 million square kilometers, Africa's 30 million square kilometers. Look, no disrespect to 16th century Flemish geographer Gerardus Mercator. Woe unto anyone who insults a 16th century Flemish geographer. The guy's just trying to educate his fellow countrymen that there's a world out there beyond the horizon that you won't drop off of. So good on him. He did the best he could. But the bigness of Greenland has stuck in the imagination. And it is no doubt factoring into Trump's fancy. 
You also know that all of this is going absolutely nowhere. Donald Trump is much more likely to acquire a lap band than Lapland, but at least for once, he's caused some head scratching as opposed to, say, some market cratering or a global recession due to his international musings. And that I count as progress. On the show today, the black sheep of Woodstock, the dorks of doo-wop, sha-na-na. Turns out they did all right for themselves. But first, Steve Russian is a longtime Sports Illustrated writer who is also a memoirist and podcaster. The guy truly delights me. I've loved Steve Russian for 25 years, but I've never met Steve Russian until now. I think we got on famously. You be the judge, the author of Knights in White Castle, Steve Russian. Hey, The Gist is doing a comedy special. The structure of the show will be, I shall invite a trio of comedians on stage. They shall ply their comedy craft, and then we will discuss why they said what they said, how they say what they say. Will they continue to keep saying the things that they said? Also, a special guest, young up-and-coming comedians critiqued by pros like Hari Kondabalu. This will all go down at the Bell House in Brooklyn on Monday, September 16th. Tickets are a quite affordable $20 to see three quite accomplished comedians who alone might charge, I don't know, $22 a night just to see them. 7 p.m. Monday, September 16th, Bell House in Brooklyn. Go to slate.com slash live for tickets and info. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Steve Russian was probably among my top three favorite Sports Illustrated magazine journalists. I'd go with Gary Smith, Steve Russian, and Alexander Wolf. And the thing is that they're all vastly different. Uh, Alexander Wolf knows a lot about how basketball is actually played. Gary Smith takes a year and a half to do the deepest profile you ever met. And Steve Russian cracks wise, you know, four jokes per paragraph. And it still works for me. These days, what is Sports Illustrated? What is magazine? The point is Steve Russian still writes. And his new book is Nights in White Castle, a memoir. It's about Steve growing up in Minnesota. And there is a car on the cover. And that car is uh, looking like what? What, a firebird? Yes. Yeah. But your last book was, hello, Steve, how are you? I'm doing well, Mike. How are you? Good. Your last book was Stingray Afternoons. That's right. So, but I never associated you uh, with muscle cars. Like, you don't seem to be a roll your sleeves up uh, and expose your triceps kind of guy. It was just part of growing up in Minnesota? Nobody is less associated with muscle cars <laughs> than I am. And I, I should add that my parents three favorite SI writers, Alex Wolf is number one. Yes. I don't know where I rank. He's a lovely guy. He's a great guy. Yeah. And he got me my job at Sports Illustrated. So my parents who thought I would be on their couch for the rest of my life um, are eternally indebted to him. <laughs> um, but no, I'm definitely not a muscle car guy. This was the kind of car that you would see in the parking lot at White Castle when yeah. I was when I was in, in middle school and high school, and that was our hangout. Now, Nights in White Castle, this is based on a Moody Blues song. And I, just by reading the book and your love of Van Halen and knowing what 
I Know About You. It's a funny title, but you, you don't seem like a Moody Blues guy. <laughs> no, uh, you know, Nights in White Satin, um, the previous book, Stingray Afternoons, was set in the 70s when I was a little kid. And uh, Nights in White Satin still looms large in my memory from that time because we got a, a stereo in the basement with the graphic equalizer bars that were the mm-hmm. only light right. in, in a dark basement. And we would sort of like holding your hand across a candle flame, we would see how long we could listen to these terrifying songs. <laughs> and if you listen to the spoken word portion of Nights in White Castle, breathe deep the gathering gloom, yeah. watch lights fade from every room. <laughs> As a kid in a dark basement, it's terrifying. And I could never make it through that. The same thing with uh, 10cc, big boys don't cry. <laughs> big boys don't cry. There was some of the, and, and in the first LP that I remember having in the house. My oldest brother had Hotel California. Yeah. And I don't know what was happening in that satanic hotel where they were stabbing it with their steely knives and trying to kill the beast and you can check out, but you can't leave. But it it freaked me out. And uh, even songs that were sort of more adult, melancholy, uh, cats in the cradle, you know. I was a kid. My dad traveled, but he was still there and played catch with me and stuff. But that just bummed me out that that poor little kid with a dad and they couldn't play catch. So, so, uh, uh, you know, the title works as White Castle was our hangout, but it, it still does have that residue of the 70s when I, when I was, I was traumatized by that song. Now, to be serious for a second, I do think in writing, it might seem from the outside that when you get super specific, super local, what you're doing is excluding others. But I find that there's this weird thing where if you do it well, in the specificity is the universality. And I don't exactly know why that is, except I think as human beings, we make the analogy to our version of that. So when you're writing about Dino Cicerelli and the North Stars, I'm I'm probably experiencing it as Mike Bossy and the Islanders. Exactly. There you go. And and people are also, you know, to be a little serious, are I think everybody is insecure. And, and the more they should seem to not be insecure, the more likely they are to be. And you think of like the biggest movie stars and things. And, and part of that is people wondering, are, am I weird? You know, do other, have other people experienced this? Right. You know, was, was anybody else, you know, trying to see scrambled, you know, Cinemax in their basement? And, and I think when you, when you discover that other people were doing the same thing, whether it was across the world or not, you feel a little less alone and a little less, you know, weird. And and, and it applies in, in any age. The te- technology has changed, you know. My cable is, is my kid's YouTube, whatever it is. Um, but they're having similar kind of human experiences that I had in Bloomington and, and you had on Long Island or wherever. Did you read memoirs like the two that this reminded me of were Russell Baker's on Baltimore and Bob Green's on Bexley, Ohio? Because to me, Bexley, Ohio is a place that I'd never considered. And yes, it, yet it became so alive and real after reading that. Uh, I, I know of both memoirs. I haven't read either of them. I've read, I have read a, a bunch of memoirs and I don't seek them out. But, um, you know, um, J.R. Moringer's The Tender Bar where he grew up. Uh, on Long Island. That's really good. Manhasset. Yeah. It's great. Yeah. yeah, it's great. Which is and weird. I grew up, you know, 20 miles from there, but I would never go into a bar exactly. near the railroad right. station and it's a whole different and world. That, that had, you know, a, a really compelling uh, setting there, yeah. you know, being a kid in a bar. But he was also, a lot of it was about being a kid. And I remember what I remember, and I read it years ago, but I remember from that was they had a bicentennial couch. They had like a red, white, and blue <laughs> bicentennial specific couch. And it just brought me back to the bicentennial when I was nine years old was such a big deal. And at the, around the same time, we were converting to the metric system. You know, for, right? Yeah. Talk about an eleven-day tenure, the metric system. Yeah. And your pencil box now at school had, you know, uh, 
centimeters on yeah. it. I, I had to struggle to come up with centimeters. I've already forgotten what we they were. We fought that. Yeah, we fought. To me, that. that's so entwined with that's, Jimmy Carter. Uh, totally. Like, it's probably yeah. a better idea that America hated. Exactly. That's exactly. the Carter presidency. But, but, but that sort of said to me, ah, oh, here's another guy who grew up at the same time, right. you know, and, and, and you think of yourself, you always think of yourself as probably 10 or 20 years younger than you are as you get older. And, but you never think of the time that you grew up as kind of a distant past now. You know, when I was a kid, in the Happy Days was this huge show, and American Graffiti, and there were 15 years in the yeah. past. You yeah. know, Happy Days in 1974 was about 1959, I guess, you know? Right. And now 15 years ago, to me, at 52, seems like 19 seconds ago. And so it, it takes some kind of uh, um, acceptance that my childhood in the 70s and the 80s was when I was when I was a kid in the seventies, that was would have been what the nineteen thirties was for people in the seventies. Right, you know, a long time ago, a black and white age with different kinds of cars and telephones. There's always, I think, there's a reliable nostalgia lag, and it follows us like a shadow at about a fifteen to twenty year interval. And the reason for that is, I think, people of that age who are in the time that the uh, becomes the popular time to be nostalgiaized in the current time is usually when the parents of the current time uh, were kids. And what my theory is that, so the 90s is being the subject of nostalgia now in Full House. So my theory is it's all about parenting and it's all about looking at the world through your kids' eyes and remembering, oh, when I was 10, this was going on. And then if you get that media that portrays life when you were 10, it's really resonant. Because logically, I mean, you know, as the American lifespan has been expanding, we should be nostalgia for a whole bunch of times. Right. But 50s nostalgia doesn't really exist. I talked about how the moon landing, I think, was a little bit under-celebrated given how freaking gigantic it was. Right. But my God, 90s nostalgia, because that's where the parents are. That's absolutely the case. And, and even when I sat down to write a memoir, uh, recalling my childhood's in the present tense, and uh, you know, I, I wanted you feel like you know you're living it now, even though it was the '70s or the '80s. I was looking at stuff that my kids do now and remembering, oh, I did that same yes. thing. My yes. kid, my son, would lay and lie in bed in the summertime. Does it now and count his bug bites like he's rereading the day in Braille? You know, I've got 27. You know, <laughs> yesterday I had 20. You know, look at this one; it's it's on my ankle. I can't. And, and I would do the same thing, but I'd forgotten about that for, for years, you know, and, and just kind of enumerating your bug bites and, yeah. and or picking the, the, little, uh, the little thin, super thin sheet of ice would form on the inside of my bedroom window when I was a kid in, in Minnesota. And I remember picking that up, but it would get suctioned to the, to the window and trying to peel that off. And that made me think of putting uh, the side of my palm print on the bus window when it was iced up in the wintertime. And then you would make feet, like you could put the side of your fist on the window, and that would make a little footprint-looking shape. Right, and then right. You, with your fingertip, you would make five <laughs> toes. And this just led this train of, of thought that started with stuff that my kids do now. And my my uh, 12-year-old had a friend over yesterday, and I have in my office a working banana yellow rotary dial telephone that I got off of eBay, and it was retrofit to, to work. And it doesn't work well, but it's a fuzzy line, but it's it's a land, it's our landline. It's a yeah. rotary dial phone. And they were bored on, uh, on the summer day, and they picked up the phone and tried to figure out how to dial from that phone to the friend's cell phone. And, you know, do we dial one before the area code? And they got a, they got a, a recorded message saying you must dial one. And 
eventually they were able to connect the banana yellow phone to the cell phone and they were just they were just like amazed and i said it's to like my wife to shore radio i said to my <laughs> wife this is what like one of those you know hand crank telephones where you yeah. had the ha- receiver that you'd put up to your ear yeah. and you'd hold the other part to your mouth ahoy 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 <laughs> exactly that's what it was like when i was a kid it was it was something from a completely different world but of course that tel- the ahoy ahoy telephone was a lot closer to the telephone that i as a kid the ma bell uh, banana yellow one than than that Ma Bell telephone is to the what the kids think of as a phone now, you know, their yeah. iPhone. So I listened to the Ball and Chain podcast, which you and your wife, who we should say is Rebecca Lobo, is uh, one of the greatest basketball players of all time, UConn, Liberty, etc. And you talk a lot about your kids and boredom and how much joy you take in any time they're not on electronic devices. That is a constant theme over the 80 episodes. Well, having having just taken them in a minivan through Southern California and, you know, you'd say, look at that. It's the Pacific Ocean. Right. It's people. These are these are. You know, you'd have to pay $20 million to have a house here and to look at that. Could you please look up from your from your uh, uh, Temple Run or whatever game you're playing to look at that, you know? Yeah. We flew out here to look at that. And uh, so anytime we can get them off of those things, and it has to be, it has to be forcibly. We went, we went for a hike in, in Runyon Canyon in, in Los Angeles. The kids had no interest. They sat on the first park bench they could find. They sat down with their arms crossed and just kind of frowned out yeah. at the Hollywood Hills. And... And I remember doing that as a kid. We went on a California trip, and we had to see the swallows returning to the mission at San Juan Capistrano. We didn't want to do that. We didn't want to go to Colonial Williamsburg, you know? Did yes. anybody as a kid enjoy the butter-churning exhibition at Colonial Williamsburg? I have proof. I, I mean, I think we could prove that they didn't because Tricorner Hats never came back. <laughs> never came back. Yeah. And, and you were lucky if you got to buy, like, the souvenir Tricorner hat. We just wanted to go to the the holodome swimming pool at the Holiday Inn and yeah. inhale that chlorine. But uh, so I think in the same way that every every suburban house should have a room that you're not allowed to go into mm. that just has the vacuum tracks in it and the maybe the uh, plastic-covered yes. couch, every kid in should mint, be— In near-mint condition. Exactly. Yes. Every that We're saving for company, but even company never gets to sit on it. <laughs> It's just a museum and, for good company. Yeah, yeah, and 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 yeah, exactly. <laughs> and and if only we had good company. And and in the same way, every kid should be made to go on at least one excruciatingly boring part of a vacation where dad reads out the historical markers. Because I'm at the age now where I do stop at the historical markers to look and to read them. And oh, this is kids. Yeah. Did you know that William Mulholland first brought water to you know? They, I mean, they they some but, of them do need an editor though. Like oh, I was, of course. I was oh. I was in Hudson, and there was a historical marker saying, "This is the place where the first place in America." where a hotel was built on the site of a former movie theater. Like, are we doing this now? <laughs> well, yeah, the, We're doing Mad yeah. Libs? Like, this is the first hardware store that used to be a veterinarian clinic. Okay. <laughs> I think they probably have a tie-in with the plaque industry, the yeah. uh, the local Big historical plaque, society. That's right. Big yeah. plaque, yes. That, that's, uh, that's either a, a dentistry thing or – um, um, but we were in California, and we, we saw a, a plaque for at a hotel that was one of – one of the nation's largest wooden structures. <laughs> really? You know, yeah. I mean, it, look, I don't want to brag, it, but yeah. even if it's the largest, it's yeah. probably not. And where I live in Connecticut, Lake Compounds, the amusement park, they've got little historical markers around the park now. And it is a historic amusement park, and they've got an old wooden roller coaster and all this stuff, but they have a they have a a plaque, a marker where Guns N' Roses didn't show up oh. for a concert in, you know, 1987 or something. They were supposed to be there and they didn't show. 
uh, how do we even know that this is the spot where they didn't show? You <laughs> so know? It's all the spot yeah. where they didn't show and up. Yet, and yet, do we I, have a vapor yeah, trail exactly. of slash? And I, I, yet, I took a picture of that of that historic spot. Where <laughs> do you think they meant that with irony? I, I, I certainly hope so. <laughs> yeah. uh, um, but uh, but I, I feel a kind of you know, especially you know, just driving around. Um, Los Angeles and, you know, so many spots where, you know, the, the, the actress flung herself off the H in the Hollywood sign yeah. in 1923 or, you know, you pass the Chateau Marmont and kids, you don't know who John Belushi is, but that's where he died. I, you know, I, I, I will stop and gawp at any one of those things. Right. So let me ask you one other Rebecca question. Do you think that she respects your craft as much as you respect hers? Well, I think she respects my craft of writing books now, my craft as a sports writer right. is different because she has a completely different – she has had to deal with sports writers, you know, her whole life. And she right. has great respect for many of them. And she You're has – You're just not one of them? <laughs> well, uh, good question. Good question. I mean, there's too much – there's too much <laughs> other stuff associated with that right. that I, I can't separate the sports writer part of it. But uh, but we definitely, definitely have different perspectives. And when we, when we started dating and she was still playing in the WNBA and – you know, I, I remember this vividly. For some reason, Roger Clemens was on SportsCenter. Roger Clemens came up and she said, Roger Clemens, he is such a nice guy. And I just started <laughs> laughing. I said, we have had very different experiences yeah. <laughs> of Roger Clemens. And frankly, we've had, you know, different experiences of just about everybody. I remember at, being at a Liberty game and, uh, and she wasn't playing. She was, she was injured. And after the game, she was still in warm-ups. A guy sitting courtside, Barry Bonds, the Giants were in town to play the Mets, walked across the court and gave her a hug. And, and uh, I was like, gosh, you know, I've been around Barry Bonds plenty. I never got a hug no, from him. So, yeah. so two very, very different experiences. <laughs> and, and Well, that's game-recognized game. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. But she, she, sees, she sees the best. She literally sees the best in humanity because, you know, she's exposed to the best of, right. of these people. But then again, if Jackie McMullen came up to both of you, she'd probably hug, hug Rebecca Well, Jackie Mul McMullen has come up to both of you. We've been in, in plenty of places together, together and, 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 and rightly so. So um, uh, I find myself, you know, people coming up and saying, you know, could I get a picture? I take the, I take the, the, the phone from them and take a picture of Rebecca and that person. And, and one time uh, we were at O'Hare waiting in line at, at McDonald's at O'Hare, changing planes to go somewhere. And a guy came up older guy and said, could I get a picture? And I said, you know, sure, give me your phone. He says, no, no, I want you too, Andre Agassi. And so <laughs> I, uh, you know, I was flattered and I, I'll sign anything. So, yeah. um, you know, it doesn't wow, have to be my name. Andre Agassi was 6'5". Yes, wow. exactly. But he's, he, he's, uh. he's just as bald as Andre. So... Steve Russian is a longtime Sports Illustrated writer. You should check out his podcast with his wife, Ball and Chain. His new memoir is called Nights in White Castle. Steve, great to meet you. Mike, thank you so much. And now the spiel. Shanana played Woodstock. It's one of those cultural cross currents that always obsessed me and always struck me as quite off. You know, these kind Elvis meets Nixon, Joe Namath's on the Brady Bunch, the insane clown posse gets mesmerized by magnets. It was clear who's on the goofier side of those interactions, but I've been rethinking Shanana as of late. Like the moon landing, Woodstock's 50th anniversary is prominent, but not as culturally ubiquitous as I'd have thought compared to, say, the 20th or the 30th. 
because if you're in your 20s at Woodstock, you're in your 70s now, and culture is not made for you anymore. It's okay. You've had a good ride. So maybe it's because the reverence for Woodstock has faded that Shanana, having played Woodstock, is no longer seen purely as a bunch of clowns romping through the sacred temple. The temple has been overturned a bit. And I've done a lot of research into Shanana. Too much research. Shanana is interesting. Is Shanana good? Sure. They sang Blue Moon and Earth Angel and Get a Job. These are important songs. Shanana does certainly respectable versions. That's what they were doing. They were doing cover songs of music from uh, just a decade earlier. There were dozens of them. They wore greaser outfits and gold lame outfits and they danced and they adopted characters. So most of that stuff I just said, the gold lame and the dozens of members and the choreography and character, it's kind of like Beyonce, isn't it? It's maybe a little closer to our current cultural moment than what was going on at Woodstock, an indistinguishable stream of hippie fringe vest guys like the Keith Hartley Band or Quill or the Incredible String Band. Yeah, man, they all jammed at Woodstock. Let me pause for... Another explanation of Shanana for all our listeners under the age of, say, 40, who might be saying up until this point, Shawaha? Shanana refers to these guys. In the beginning, there was nothing but rock. Then, somebody invented the wheel. And things just began to roll. To an eight-year-old Mike Pesca, they were just entertainers on TV who sang 50 songs. I liked 50 songs. They did stupid comedy skits. I like stupid comedy skits. They had a lead singer named Bowser who did this flexing thing with his biceps. Seemed to have no practical purpose except for screaming, trademark. It was a time when Barbara Mandrell and the Mandrell sisters had a variety show, where Donnie and Marie had a variety show, where George Plimpton and the Paris Review had a variety show. Okay, I made that up. It was uh, some sketches, some songs. My parents dubbed it acceptable non-trash TV. And this was really important in embedding itself in my consciousness. It was on. That, that was really important back in the late 70s, early 80s, being on. Years earlier, before they got the show, Shanana had indeed played Woodstock. It was a genre mismatch. But the story goes like this. They were students at Columbia. They were part of a glee club type group, the Kingsmen. And for one show only, they adopted this greaser shtick. And it was quite popular. They jumped on the bandwagon. They booked some gigs downtown. And when they were there, they delighted Jimi Hendrix. Their eighth or ninth ever gig was Woodstock. They they were fine. They're in the, uh, they're in the Woodstock movie. They were the last group before Jimi Hendrix closed down the concert with that rendition of the Star Spangled Banner we all know today. What fascinated me was what became of the Shananaians. Now, the group experienced, as musicians do, as I suppose any group of a number of people, three over three dozen people do, they experienced some overdoses, some deaths by natural causes, a few kept at their musical careers, but the CVs of some of them are really astounding. So when their syndicated show was on the air, they did the intro credits. Dirty Dan! Dirty! 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 D
Denny, that Denny, that is future Yale Law School graduate, Frederick Dennis Green. He went on to become the vice president of production and features at Columbia Pictures. And then he wound up teaching at the Oregon School of Law and for a long time at Dayton School of Law. An extremely accomplished person in the field of film and the law. Santini, who you heard mentioned there, well, that's Scott Powell, orthopedic surgeon who went on to become the team physician for the United States women's national soccer team. He's on the medical staff at the Keck School of Medicine at USC. Also playing at Woodstock, original Shanana member Alan Cooper. Today, he is the provost of the Jewish Theological Seminary of America, a professor of Judaism. There was Joe Witkin, the original keyboard player, who also went on to become uh, an ER physician. And then there was Bruno. That's Bruce Clark. If you go to Texas Tech and look up the Paul Whitfield Horn Professor of Literature and Science, you will come across Bruce Clark. Check out the Shanana member Bruce Bruno Clark's new work, Post-Human Metamorphosis, Narrative, and Systems. Oh, the endowed chairs just keep on coming. The group was founded by and choreographed by George Leonard, who went on to teach English at Yale and to be a professor at San Francisco State. And then there is his brother, Robert Leonard. The old NBC show Forensic Files tells us of Robert Leonard's current calling in the creepiest possible way. The writer claimed he killed Charlene when she tried to end their nine-month affair. She wanted to break it off, so I broke her neck. This is the fifth woman I've killed. I'm getting good at it. Cops have no idea how easy it is to pin the husband when they only look there. Investigators sent the letter, along with the purported stalker letters, to forensic linguist Dr. Robert Leonard, who had an unusual background. He was a founding member of the rock and roll group Sha Na Na. What he's saying is that Robert Leonard killed that lady. No, no, Robert Leonard is a professor of forensic linguistics at Hofstra. He helps catch serial killers and murderers. The question is, the question I kept having is, is it a fluke or is it understandable that so many members of the Shana Nation went on to illustrious careers? Was it that their name was taken from the lyrics of the song Get a Job by the Silhouettes? Two other factors. One, as I said, the original members of Shanana all went to Columbia. Big advantage going to an Ivy League school. And then there's this. Wikipedia lists 42 current or former members of Shanana. If you take 42 of anyone, a few will achieve glory. A few will be left behind. A few will only be remembered for their Shanananigans. Of course... That said, there are 21 former members of the Butterfield Blues Band, and none became doctors or professors, though some just kept on rocking. One's in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, one or two are. But the Butterfield Blues Band is Shana not the subject of this spiel. I do think, however, that Shana Na, in general, should be thought of something as less than a punchline, maybe as more of a curious launching pad for quite a few careers that greatly added to society, even if they were grossly out of place 50 years ago on Yasger's farm.
And that's it for today's show. The Gist was produced by Pierre Bienname and Daniel Schrader, who founded a band a while ago to celebrate the glories of the majestic river in Ireland. But Shannon, ah, ran into copyright troubles. The Gist, to quote the cable sent out by the Iranian Revolutionary Guard, January 1979, Shah Nana. Oopro deeperu, and thanks for listening.